You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Our desire is to honor and share the best parts of the Christian contemplative traditions so that this collective wisdom might serve the flourishing of humanity, all beings, and all of creation. My name is Ben Kesey, and I lead the development team at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I want to thank all of you who are generous donors, giving freely and cheerfully to make this work possible. If you've been impacted by these podcast conversations and are inspired to invest in the future of CAC's mission and work, twice per year, we invite your financial support. To contribute, go to cac.org donate to make a gift. Thank you so much. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Well, I'm here with James Finlay, sitting in his cozy study uh, with Corey from the Centre for Action and Contemplation and myself here to launch this podcast series with Jim. And we're starting with a little introductory chat. It's good to be with you, Jim. Thank you. Glad we can do this. I'm grateful for it. Yeah. And we should let you know up front that this is real life for you at home, that there's going to be some, there's some construction downstairs and some gardening outside. And yeah. My wife might stick her head in the door and say hi. Yeah. It's just yeah. like real life. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, we're excited to be here and get started today. Good. The podcast is about helping us wake up to what is already true and what is always happening that gives our life meaning and direction. Our guide will be James Finley, and he will be leading us in a regular practice of meditation on the Christian mystics. How'd that sound, Jim? Nice. (laughs) I sounded wise because I stole your wording there. That was a direct (laughs) quote. Um, Before we get started with the practice sessions where you'll be leading people in a meditation practice, uh, we thought it would be good to introduce you and help people get to know you a little bit. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what this time is about. We've got a number of topics to cover, but let's get started with how you came to be in this Christian mystical tradition. What was your starting point? Yeah. <clears throat> um, I was born in uh, Akron, Ohio, uh, 1943, and uh, I was the oldest of six children. Uh, my father was a violent alcoholic. My mother was a devout Catholic. And I think through her, uh, my faith became a kind of life-saving thing that sustained me. And uh, when I was in the ninth grade, uh, this Catholic high school that I was attending, I was a freshman, uh, an instructor in the religion class talked about monasteries. and. Uh, I'd never heard of monasteries before. And I saw them really were, police, were they're places where people go to experience God's presence. And, uh, and their fidelity to surrendering to the presence of God, uh, believing that that fidelity radiates out and touches the whole world in ways that we don't understand, a sense of the mystical body and prayer. And he mentioned Thomas Merton, and um, I'd never heard of Thomas Merton before. 
So I went to the school library and they had one book by Merton there, a, a journal that he wrote in the monastery called The Sign of Jonas. And when I read that, it just had a profound effect on me. He just said very beautiful things about God's presence and the nearness of God and, and so on. And uh, so for the four years of high school, the violence continued. I kept reading Thomas Merton and I felt called to go to the monastery. And my master plan was that I would enter the monastery and uh, sit at his feet and have him guide me into this experience. And so uh, when I graduated from high school, 1961, I did that. I left my home in Akron and went down to the monastery. It's the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, which is a Trappist monastery, a cloistered Trappist monastery. And I entered and lived there as a member of the community for nearly six years. So uh, I would say during that time, I was, I guess, immersed in uh, contemplative Christianity. And for three of those years, Thomas Merton, in his role as novice master, was my spiritual director. So I had the good fortune of sitting with him. And I really saw him that he embodied the mystical lineage, the saints and mystics down through the ages, back to the desert fathers of desert mothers, and Jesus spending whole nights in prayer. He was like the living embodiment of that uh, tradition. Which then later on, I, I recognized in Richard Rohr, and that's how Richard Orr and I became kind of in resonance with each other, and me being here right now. Mm. And, um, and so one of the things that Merton led me in was a, a study of the Christian mystics. So it was St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and Meister Eckhart and the Cloud of Unknowing and uh, the Little Flower, St. Teresa's Little Flower, and... Um, um, uh, those texts, those classic texts. So he taught me how to um, uh, experience the beauty that was radiating out from the words of these mystic teachers. So then when I, I left the monastery, uh, returned to my home in Akron, I got married, I started teaching high school religion, the Catholic schools of the Cleveland Diocese. I still felt very much called to continue living this contemplative way of life. So I had a regular meditation practice and I kept reading these mystics. And uh, then I wrote a book called Merton's Palace of Nowhere, which is on Thomas Merton's insights into ultimate identity beyond the ego, the self hidden with Christ and God before the origins of the universe. And when that book came out, I started getting invitations to lead retreats around the country. And uh, it was on those retreats around the country, on these silent meditation weekend retreats, that Richard Rohr and I ran into each other on the road, kind of on the circuit, we met and talked. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been going on ever since. So, mm -hmm. And then, then when they started the Living School, this Center for Action and Contemplation invited me to be one of the core teachers with Cynthia Bergeau. Um, it was a real providential godsend for me. <clears throat> So these podcasts are part of that. Mm. Kind of, so here we are. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Your life started with a lot of trauma. And it's, a, it's an amazing kind of happy ending, so to speak, that you arrived in the monastery with Thomas Merton. What do you think about that when you look back? Mm. Here's how I see it, and just to touch base on it lightly for me, how mm. it started. Mm. Is uh, one of my earliest memories 
is, I don't know how old I was, maybe four. I was lying in bed at night, and um, I was listening to my father beat my mother outside the door. And I felt very, I remember feeling very sad because he'd hit me earlier that day. And I knew if he wanted to hit me again tomorrow, he would. No one would, it was that kind of thing. Mm. And so I, I took my mother's advice, you know, and I prayed to God for strength. And my experience was that um, God heard my prayer. And in a moment I don't remember, came to me in the middle of the night and took me to a secret place in God my father didn't know about. So the next morning when I got up, uh, the beatings continued. But for me it was much better because my father was really hitting that effigy of me out there that people can see. He didn't know the real me was hidden in this secret place in God. Mm. Later when I became a clinical psychologist, I would say I dissociated. Mm. And I borrowed my mother's religiosity to provide a framework for that. But I also think that once I sorted that out, the fact that I was dissociating doesn't at all mean that God did not come in the middle of the night and take me to a secret place, because God hears the cries of the poor. Mm. So I saw this, this strange mixture where trauma and transcendence touch each other. See? And later in the mystics, when I got into the mystics, like the dark night of the soul and the Buddhist teaching to the great death, so on, there's a strange, also the very teachings of Jesus about the cross, about life out of death and um, the deathless nature of love. And that's how it started for me. Mm. And so I took that with me to the monastery, it just kept gestating inside of me. Mm. And then when I started going through my own therapy, and then working with people in therapy, got more and more important for me to see that connection. Mm. So what we're doing here in this podcast, the, interest, the emphasis here will always be including that. Because that's the idea when people listen to this, it touches people, and it touches them in their heart. You know, it touches them in the ground of their body. Mm. And it touches these very deep things that we all feel inside. So the, I want to keep it real at that level. But I also want to keep it firmly in the inner light of this um, uh, deep sense of solace and consolation that the mystics offer for this deep, like infinite healing that is really the essence of the mystical experience. Mm. So that's my sense. You've uh, described Gethsemane as a Trappist cloistered monastery. Can you tell us what that means? Yes. <clears throat> you know, in the early church, uh, uh, there was a movement within the church of the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers. And these were men and women who went on into the desert to undergo an interior martyrdom, which is a way of dying to the last trace of anything less than an infinite union with the infinite love of God as the sole basis for their security and identity. And um, the sayings of the Desert Fathers, which is a book you were just looking at, um, they're like those Zen sayings, you know, it's so pure mm. and uh, clear like this. <clears throat> and those sayings, um, in, it was in the Eastern Church, the Greek-speaking, through Egypt and Palestine. So those sayings were brought to the West, and St. Benedict in the 5th century read them, because they were also wandering hermits in, in the Western Church, in the Latin-speaking Church, this mystical sense of Christ consciousness. <clears throat> and uh, so Benedict then brings that into the Western Church, too. 
And he was living as a hermit, seeking this radical. And so he wrote the Rule of St. Benedict. And in the Rule of St. Benedict, the Benedictine Order followed by Benedict. Um, so today, so what you have in the church are the, the, the monastic order of Benedictines. They really evolved in their own way as deeply contemplative, liturgical, and so on. But they, they also went into found schools and <clears throat> different kinds of ministry. Well, a reform of the Benedictines in the 11th century by St. Bernard were cloistered. And in the Catholic Church, there are several of these cloistered orders. Mm -hmm. So among women, there's the poor Clares, the Franciscan poor Clare nuns. There's the Carmelites, Teresa of Avila, Carmelite. Uh, there's the Cistercian order followed by St. Bernard, which is Thomas Merton's order, the one I entered. There's the Camalda League hermits by St. Romuald. And there's the Carthusian hermits. And the striking thing about these orders is that there's no ministry. They don't teach. They don't serve the poor. They don't help in parishes. They never leave, and no one comes in. See, they're cloistered. Mm. So it's the anonymity of God in the world, bearing witness to the ultimacy of God as the destiny of humanity, and then praying for the world in that cloistered silence as a call from God. See? And what's stunning about monastic life, I think, is that it's just unrelenting ordinariness. There's no newspapers. There's no television, there's no radio. When I was there, did, there was no recreation period. We used sign language to talk. So I didn't speak for almost six years. Mm. And it's like being in solitude with God in community, like this, undergoing this mystical transformation in God in ways of ministering to the world. And those, 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 that was that monastic life and those six years of silence, I think, is what really contributed to how deeply all this sank into me. It really mm. had a very deep effect on me. And what's interesting too is those monasteries are very, very similar to Buddhist monasteries. If you go to a Buddhist monastery, the Dalai Lama, these different, the, the, in India, the ashrams of India, Sufi gatherings of mystical Islam, the Kabbalistic gatherings of mystical Judaism, there was these communities of like, like mystical transformation in the world through this deep inner process. So these mystic, most of these people who come to the fullness of this, which are the mystics, talk about this later, most of them are anonymous. It doesn't draw attention to itself. But some of them are called to be mystic teachers see, because they know how confusing it can be to start to feel the stirrings of this inside of you. Thomas Merton once says, this, he said, there's many people who are called to these mystical dimensions of life. But there's no one to give witness to them, to explain what's happening to them. And uh, so it was in that setting then, this kind of monastic, silent, uh, like got up at 2.30 in the morning to chant the Psalms, went to bed at 7.30 at night. And uh, just aura at labora, prayer and work in silence. And it did a number on me. You know, it just really affected me, <laughs> changed my life, really. Do you see Thomas Merton as one of those mystics who was called to be a teacher and help help with the inner life? Oh, very much so. I <clears throat> remember once when I wanted to see him for direction, he, he uh, we were talking about this, you know, this kind of deep sense of God. And he said, he said, once in a while, you'll find somebody with whom you can talk about this. And he said, but they're hard to find. And he said, a lot of people don't even know about it. Whether other people know about it, they'll give you reasons so you can put it off till later. He said, but with this place is all about, really, 
is fidelity to this. Mm. One Zen master was once asked, you know, what is the greatest suffering? And the Zen master said, to wear monk's robes without resolving the great matter. See? So you're dressed up in monk's robes and you've not resolved this great death, like this infinite period, you know, this realization like this. So he, he really was, when he uh, wrote his uh, autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, one on the New York Times bestsellers list, he went on to write many books. And he really, I think one of the most significant and most influential spiritual writers of our age, really within the Christian tradition. Mm. Yeah. It would parallel Thich Nhat Hanh and Buddhism, I think, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about when you arrived at Gethsemane. How does it work? Did you knock on the door? Is there a... What, what you do is, uh, St. Benedict says in his rule, when someone comes to the monastery, don't let him in. But make him wait out at the gate for three days. And so you go to the guest house first. And I had lived in the guest house. And I was interviewed by the novice master, by the the uh, vocation director that I've been writing to for four years in high school, Father John of the Cross. He was a great guy. And uh, then I, uh, I met the abbot. I met Father John Hughes-Bamberger, who was a psychiatrist, who interviewed you for mental health. Because in a way, it's, very, um, it's a very simple life, but there's no escape from yourself. Do I mean? So you have to, there has to be kind of a psychological constitution mm-hmm. or kind of resiliency. Thomas Merton once said, he said, the thing about this life we're living is that it's, it's a, he said, it's as serious as death. And if you don't have a sense of humor, you won't make it. <laughs> so they really look for a kind of grounded, humble, ordinary, real kind of groundedness. So I was interviewed by those three people. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and also, I'll never forget, I went there and well, at least when I was there, the guests were up in the balcony, and you looked down into the monks in the choir, in the cloistered choir part, chanting the psalms. And I heard them chanting vespers in Latin, you know, Gregorian chant. Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't even have to know Latin to be moved by, you know, the rhythm of uh, that communal voice chanting the psalms like that. So it's, it's very archetypal and profound, really. Mm. And uh, so I, I entered. And... Uh, so they, they shaved my hair off and put it in this pocket. I wore a monastic habit and mm-hmm. I got up at 2.30. I just start, you just start. You know? Wow. So you're getting up at 2.30 in the morning? 2.30 in the morning. And then and <clears throat> they chant the, 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 the canonical hours of the divine office. <clears throat> and, um, and then, and so it's the, the chanting of the office is then mingled with manual labor and uh, study and prayer. Mm-hmm. And devoted to this contemplative way of life. And so that's what it was. And then Sundays were just like every other day in the monastery, except there was no manual labor. And so you got up at 2.30 in the morning and had all day for nothing. <laughs> just silence. <laughs> Merton has this lovely saying. I love this. He's talked about Sundays in the monastery. He says, the, he says, the young monks lean sadly up against walls asking questions that have no answers. The old monks are silent because they've given up interest in speech. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like what's all this about? Mm-hmm. Like this infinite nothingness and poverty and prayer. And you take long walks in the woods and sit in the back of the church, take walks in the cemetery. And it was great, really. <laughs> uh, for me, it was. Uh, tell us about the first time you met Thomas Merton. Um, well, when I entered, um, it was a medieval tradition evolved from this, is that there were lay brothers who led a life of manual labor and prayer. They wore a brown monastic habit. 
And then the choir monks, they chanted the office in English. And then the, the choir monks chanted it in Latin. And they were studied for the priesthood. And so the lay brothers were life of manual labor and prayer. The choir monks was manual labor, prayer, and study, like theology, scripture, the, uh, the mystics, and so on. So when I entered, I, had, I, I barely graduated from high school because of the trauma. And uh, so I, I entered into the lay brothers. And so Thomas Merton was novice master, choir novices, so I had no contact with him. Ah. But it was an experimental program where lay brothers could sit in on the first year philosophy classes for the choir monks studying for the priesthood. So this is Father Daniel Walsh, who taught Merton at Columbia. and was on Thomas Aquinas and Duns Scotus. And for some reason, I just took the metaphysical language. You know, I just, I just, I just took to So they changed me over into the choir. And so Merton became my director. And the thing for me was, because of my trauma history, I had this issue with authority figures. You know, that was, I was good trauma. <laughs> I would, so I'd go and I'd sit down, I was 18 years old, mm-hmm. and I would start to talk, and my voice was shaking. And he wouldn't know what was wrong, and I said, my voice was shaking. I said, I'm scared because you're Thomas Merton. <laughs> <laughs> and he said to me, and this is brilliant, really, he worked, I worked at the pig barn at the time, livestock on the farm. He said, every day, under obedience, I want you to come in early from afternoon work before Vespers. I want you to sit down with me and tell me one thing that happened at the pig barn each day. I can remember as soon as he said it, I remember I can do that. Mm. And it leveled the playing field for me, really. Mm. And he would listen to that, how's sound number five, how's her foot, how's the thing. And then that opened all this discussion about God, really. So it was so strange for me, and this is the heart of these teachings too, is that here I so wanted him to think highly of me. Mm. And I was so embarrassed that my voice was shaking. And he saw that, had compassion on me. Wow. And he th- the brilliance of the intervention that leveled it and opened And I think maybe later on that really affected my ending up as a psychologist. You know, the power of an inter- a compassionate intervention mm. that opens up something for someone to share something vulnerable that lets them go deeper. And I think actually a lot of Merton's teachings are about that. Because right? mm. he was so in touch with his own brokenness. He was very aware of it. And he says it's through our acceptance of our brokenness that we can get in touch with God, who's infinitely in love with us, is precious in our brokenness. So instead of trying to get over our brokenness or past our brokenness, it's the deep acceptance of the brokenness. It's the meeting place. Hmm. Really. Yeah. And uh, did he come across as compassionate? Did you feel he was his very, compassion? He was very compassionate hmm. towards himself and always towards me. He was funny. I mean, he could call, you know, he saw things as he saw them. He, mm-hmm. he was very direct that way. But he was a very compassionate person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was. Someone once said uh, Thomas Merton was a gentle man because God was so gentle with him. Mm. And I think he was like that. Yeah. And, uh, and really, this is what I want to get at here because I think this is at the heart of all the. And really, it's the heart of the gospel. Too, it's the heart of Christ. Really, the thing. is that um, is that everyone listening to these podcasts. And I say this too as a psychotherapist, having sat with a lot of people. Everyone's listening to this in the midst of their situation. And everybody has a little piece of their story that is sometimes almost more than they can bear. Hmm. And everyone has things about themselves that they can't abide, you know, that they wish weren't true. 
And I think what a lot of, I find so consoling about these teachings is the need to be honest about that, to be real about that, but infinitely tender-hearted toward the hurting places like that. And in a way, that's the essence of the teaching. See, that if I, it's, it's, it's the extent to which I accept the depth of my brokenness, that I come upon the depths of God's infinite love for me as precious in my brokenness. And in the Christian tradition, this is called the gift of tears. See, sometimes it's literally tears, but it's the inner weeping of being unexplainably loved without foundations. And seeing that's, that's experiential salvation, really. Yeah. Mm. And that's the, the teaching of the mystics, is to help us discover that? The, the, the uh, I would say that the, the teaching of Christ, let's say the teaching of the good news is this. And um, the mystical part is that, that on this earth we experience this, as Paul says, as in a mirror darkly. So our faith is a kind of obscure certainty or Gabriel Marcel calls it a primitive inner assurance of this deep love. So through the Gospels, through prayer, you know, we live by, this is our faith. And the measure of this faith is love. And, and so we have our faith, we have love, and we have hope. And hope is that when we die, when death comes, that we will not be annihilated, but consummated. And when we cross the veil of death, we won't, the infinite, God's infinite oneness with us won't be mediated through faith. It'll be unmediated divinity. We will be living God's own life as God lives God's life. Because the generosity of the infinite is infinite. And that's, that's our destiny in God. What the mystics are, are men and women who, through mystical experiences, they're touched by the realization that even now it's that way. That, that even now, down in the deep down depths of things, that God is welling up and giving herself away in and as every breath and heartbeat. And when they taste the oneness, when they taste that taste of oneness, see then in moments we taste that, we're like a momentary mystic. And so the mystics are these mystic teachers. They bear witness that it's possible to be habitually established in that oneness. See, instead of a momentary little flash of it, Rest, God resting in us, resting in God, um, and the desire to habituate it. The desire to habituate it can be consummated as abiding union. And then those men and women, the mystics, bear witness to it. Then the mystic teachers, such as Merton, they offer guidance to people who feel interiorly called to that. Shunru Suzuki, the Soto Zen master, says the primary task of the teacher in these traditions is to give witness to the seeker that what the seeker seeks is real. That is, you know your heart has not deceived you because you sent your in the presence of someone in whom it's been realized. And I used to feel that way when I sat with Merton. Mm. You know, I thought, whatever, this is a drew me here. I'm sitting in the presence of someone who bears witness that it's real. Mm. And so then, now that I, I know that it's real, that I not break faith with my awakened heart, that it's real, then what is the path along which I can abide and live in it and then share that with other people. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Who was your, who was the first mystic you read? Uh, I think my, <clears throat> the first mystic was St. John of the Cross. And how, how did he impact you? 
Um, I, I read St. Jonathan. I, you had to get permission then to read a book from the novice master. So I said I wanted to read St. John of the Cross, The Dark Night of the Soul. <clears throat> and uh, I, I remember walking out in the woods and I sat beneath the tree open. I never read this before. And here's one thing, here's an example of St. John of the Cross says. He says, uh, he says, what happens, he says, God's like a, he compares God to a, like a heart, H-A-R, like a little deer. And he said, God, this, this infinite love of God rushes out and wounds your heart with love. And then dashes off and leaves you with a love wound. See? And you're walking around with your love wound. And just when you least suspect it, that love rushes out again and touches the love wound and makes it deeper. And he said, the one who's wounding your heart with love knows where the most sore place of the love wound is. It goes right there and makes it deeper. And he said, then you cry out, it's not fair that you do not carry off this heart that you have stolen, that I live not where I live. See? And when I read that, I was sitting out in the woods. <laughs> it just kind of, it was too beautiful not to be true. You know, and I thought, I mean, it's just such a gift. There's people like this who say things like mm. this. And they and they say it not out of hearsay. They are that, you know. John the these. So John the Cross was my first person, uh, and I've been reading him all these years. Mm -hmm. He's just really so beautiful. And how did Thomas Merton help you process the mystics? What what kind of questions was he asking you? How was he helping you? He, um, how I put it is, is that when I would go in to see Merton, when I look back on it that I always thought that we were, there were three questions that he was always, we were always under the auspices of three questions in our time together. The first question always was, and he would literally say this, is he, he'd ask, how's it going? And what he wanted to know was, what's it like living in here? Like, what's it like waking up at 2.30 in the morning? What's it like chanting the Psalms? What's it like walking in the woods? He said, because we've come here to live. See, that's why we've come here to live. And so talk to me. See? So it's a, it's a very grounded, like incarnational reality of the holiness of everyday life. Talk to me. The second question was, um, how's it going with respect to your surrender to the mystery that accessed your heart and brought you to this place that it might transform you into itself? See? So there was a moment in which you were intimately accessed by this love. For me, for example, reading the sign of Jonas when Merton said, as for me, I have but one desire, that there was a moment, intense or subtle, that you were touched by something. See? And then you were drawn to give yourself in love to the love that gave itself to you in that moment. So how, how's it going, see, with the surrender? And the third question he would ask is, how's it going in experiencing the mystery of the second question bubbling up to the messy details of the first question. Because you wake up every morning, you're still just you. Mm -hmm. So how's it going in this alchemy of, of, the, of the divinity of ordinariness and unresolved matters of your heart? Like, how's, you know, where are you at with that? Mm. You know? And that's how he affected, that would be one way of trying to distill mm -hmm. out for me what kind of was always a, a, a recentering place. Mm -hmm. right. And then it helped me to do the same thing, you know, all those three questions have always guided me. So in a way, uh, not treating spirituality as separate from the day-to-day -day life, but having them ultimately be processed as one. 
Yes, exactly. And, and it's another big thing with these mystics. Really, uh, Merton used to say, is there a Christian in the house? You know, like, raise your hand. Uh, <laughs> uh, see, what we're saying, with, what our faith teaches, I say spirituality is experiencing to what faith proclaims and responding to it. And what faith proclaims is that ultimately speaking, there's just one thing happening. That in God's fiat, like let it be, the perpetual let it be, that, this in, that the, the, the infinite presence of God is presencing itself and giving itself away in and as the intimate immediacy of our very presence, the presence of others, the presence of all things. And if love is the fullness of presence, then just one thing is happening. This love is pouring itself out and giving itself away, See, that we are the song God sings. All that. And, and this is so radical that if God were to cease loving us into the present moment at the count of three, at the count of three we'd disappear. Because we are nothing, absolutely nothing, apart from the love of God. And likewise, if God would cease loving the universe into existence, the whole universe would disappear. See? And that means that the, the, our very nothingness without God makes our very presence to be the presence of God. And that's the mystical experience. Mm. See, that's true. And we get little echoes of it. Uh, as in a mirror darkly, in intimacy with others through art, through poetry, through prayer. But what the mystical experience is, is that the, de is that the depths of God, by the generosity of God, has been given to me as the depths of myself. Mm. And that oneness is God's infinite identification with me, with his own life, and my nothingness without God. And that's spiritual experience. Mm. Then once I've tasted it, because love is never imposed, it's always offered then I have to freely give myself to the love that gives itself to me. And in the reciprocity of love, then destiny is fulfilled. And that's the story of our life, mm. I think. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm looking at it. The real story of our life is where are we at in the reciprocity of love. Mm. Yeah. At one level, it sounds so simple. At another level, it's so deep. Exactly. What I think it is, how I put it, in these grace moments where we experience it, uh, when it's actually happening, it's 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 too self-evident to doubt, you know, because it's a moment of awe or it's like amazement or wonder. It's too self-evident to doubt. It's too deep to comprehend, you know, and that's what makes it numinous. You know, like you're in the, like in the like off your shoes, you're on holy ground, mm. and the holy ground is your life, you know. And then Merton would say, then having been awakened by it, you know, it's asking something out of you. See, like where are you at with that? which is the gospel, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Tell us, did you have a moment like that in the monastery that you're describing that as a kind of a graced event? Mm. I did. Uh, I had a number of... <laughs> the main one for me was, uh, which was very life-changing for me, really, is Merton was a hermit. He was moving toward being a hermit at the monastery. And my plan, if I, had I stayed, I wanted to be a hermit, live alone in the woods, living this... And I got permission from him to go to an abandoned sheep barn and spend several hours a day there in the loft of the sheep barn. And uh, one day I was up there in the barn, uh, in the monastery, and I was reading the Psalms. And I remember it was very hot, Kentucky, in the loft of this barn, it was very hot. And um, uh, I was walking back and forth reading the Psalms, and all of a sudden, there was this vivid awareness that what we think is the air is God. 
literally God. And that I was walking back and forth in God, breathing God. And the God that I was breathing knew me through and through and through and through his compassion. So there was no images, there were no emotions, but it was like, it was like absolute. It was just like absolute and radical. And I just I spent, and I walked over, I went over to Vespers that way, breathing God. I went to bed that night. And I walked around like that for three days. Mm. And on Sunday, we were allowed to walk in the woods uh, on the other side. It was all woods, <laughs> but we were allowed to walk on these other woods. And uh, I was walking out along these woods, this place I would go, breathing God, and I had a copy of John of the Cross with me. And uh, there was a leaf hanging out over this little, it was a little path through the woods going up to this little lake. And uh, I reached out and I touched one of the leaves on the, tr low on the tree. Mm -hmm. And I looked up in the sky and there was one cloud in the sky and I said out loud, it's one. Like the God I was breathing, the leaf I was touching, was all infinitely unexplained. It was like absolute, and it changed my life, really. Mm. So, you know, it's so, I don't know, it's hard to explain it, really. Mm -hmm. And that's where I felt then, when I read John of the Cross, I felt the the cadences of their voice were the cadences of that. Mm. See, they were like, it's more like listening to music and being drawn into, if we calibrate our heart to a fine enough scale, it's already happening. Mm. Um, I use this example that if you have a radio and you turn it on, there's just a hissing noise. But if there's a dial on the radio where you can calibrate the receptive power of the radio, m music fills the room. Mm -hmm. I think our hearts are like that. We're always waiting for some great big thing to happen. But if you're sitting and you're vulnerable enough, one breath, really, you know, uh, uh, one, uh, the person you live with every day comes walking into the room mm -hmm. where you're reading your child a good night story, where you're up alone in the night, the simplest of moments, it can, you know, I mean, it just mm -hmm. like that. But it, so, but the, the the essential never imposes itself. The unessential is constantly imposing itself, and so we have to choose to surrender to the non-impositional intimacy of the essential, mm -hmm. because the world comes crowding in. Yeah, it overtakes us. We don't live in a world that's conducive. Quite the opposite. Really, and so that's where it's, it's counterculture. You know, we have to create a contemplative culture in our heart mm -hmm. to be a man or a woman who seeks to be stabilized in this in the world. Yeah, because it, those descriptions, those times you felt that sense of oneness seem so simple, so ordinary, just breathing, yeah. walking. Yeah. Um, why is it so hard for us to to have that experience? Well, I, I, I mean, it's, it's the mystery of it, really. See, I think it's here's one way of looking at it is this. See, we could say that our ego, we could call it our ego, is, is our human experience. So it's our self-reflective bodily self in our day-by-day -day life with others. And that God wants us to have a healthy ego. Because if our ego isn't healthy, we suffer in other people. So a lot of psychotherapy is the healing of the ego. <clears throat> and so it's in my ego consciousness, my humanity, that I come upon within my ego, which transcends my ego, which is this experience. Mm. Then my ego, having been awakened to what transcends itself, then has to surrender to that, which means it has to give up its claim in having the final say in who I am. And it doesn't easily give up that claim, especially if we've been traumatized. Because is it possible to be vulnerable and safe at the same time? Is that possible? So there's a kind of a, um, a self-sustaining guardedness, a hypervigilance that we watch over 
and that and love is asking out of us see how how do we very respectfully like lean into that surrender mm-hmm. like that and i think that's spiritual direction i mean that's what makes it so intimate i think and how did you so after you left the monastery how did you maintain that fidelity or that surrender how did you stay on the path well i came out i was so traumatized really from i never worked through my trauma when i went in and so i moved back in with my parents and two of my brothers were in vietnam my oldest sister had gotten pregnant at high school she was she's left and i moved back in and listening to my father beat my mother downstairs it was really amazing mm. and i dropped i i just i i just having trouble with the church i was just, it was very disorienting to me to be out here like this and so i i i did the first woman i dated we wanted to see dr javago mm-hmm. and i proposed to her <laughs> and she accepted <laughs> I just wanted out. I mean, I just wanted. I had this idea of an ideal marriage. I thought I, I'm going to move out, have a little house with a dog and huh, and have this. And uh, it was horrible. <laughs> it was just a horrible nightmare thing. So I was in this marriage, which is uh, was uh, we lived in a trailer, and I taught high school religion, Catholic schools had no money, washed cars on weekends at a car wash, and uh, in those contexts, I would have a daily practice. It was a yoga practice in Zazen, and then integrating it back into the mystical tradition. So I had my rendezvous with God as my practice, mm-hmm. and then I tried in my own broken way to live that through my life, mm. and um, circle back around each day to be grounded in the practice. And that's what I that's what I did, mm-hmm. and then that led to writing Merton's Palace of Nowhere. So I got up every morning at five o'clock, and I wrote for four or five hours on the true self for about five years, really. And the book got published and changed my life, really. Wow. Yeah. What what caused you to pick up the pen and write? Had you written before? Was it? Well, uh, I don't know. When I was at the monastery studying metaphysics, we had to do these essays on being and nothingness, things like, and Aquinas. And I love trying to put words to spiritual things. And also when I would read Meister Eckhart, or I would read uh, the Zen Koans, I always try to say, how, do, how would I, see? you know, I, I felt like, it was, I saw it as journaling in a way, like how would I articulate the ineffable? Like how would I do that? And uh, so it was along those lines. See? And so Merton's idea of the true self, ultimate identity, which is at the very essence of contemplative Christianity, really, uh, hidden with Christ and God forever before the origins of the universe. The you that was never born, because God never, 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 never does not know who you are hidden with Christ and God. And the you that was never born is you that will never die. See? And so how can I in ego consciousness be awakened to the deathless me in Christ? And I was so drawn by that, I just thought I wanted to write, to gather text from Merton and um, put that together, so that's what I did. Mm. And it sounds like you dabbled or committed to other religious paths as well. Or? Well, what happened with me is when Thich Nhat Hanh came to Gethsemane, Merton saw this. Merton, he wrote a letter uh, to D.T. Suzuki, the Zen scholar. And there, in Zen, there's these koans, like parables, a story where a, a, an enlightened master is in a dialogue with someone, and in the dialogue, the person's enlightened. 
So Merton wrote a letter to D.V. Suzuki. He said, when I read these stories, these Buddhist stories, he says, something leaps off the page at me and says, this is true. And I don't even know if I, as a Christian, could dialogue with you as a Buddhist about the common ground. Like this. So it was in that sense I began to see these traditions, like the underlying unity that pervades and transcends the distinctions between, it respects the traditions and transcends the traditions. And so the mystics in each tradition recognize each other. That's why the Dalai Lama, when he was with Merton and Thich Nhat Hanh, they just immediately recognize each other, each respecting like different dialects of divine, different things. And, um, and so I felt very drawn to that, really, to yoga, to deep yoga, like the, the Yoga Sutras, and then mostly for me to Buddhism, and then later on to Rumi. And then back to Christianity eventually? Yes, what happened was is that when, uh, um, when we were, my wife and I would go to Maui every year, the same place every year, it was right on the water. And uh, we were there in Maui, and uh, she called me out on the lanai, and I came out, and there was a little, I looked down, and there was a little, there was a school of porpoise coming in toward the shore, like coming out, you know, coming like this, like this. And there was a little girl on the shore right under us, like clapping her hands, jumping mm. up and down. And their parents were behind her taking her pictures, like an idyllic moment, you know. Mm -hmm. And someone like four uh, lanai's down, put his head around, he said, turn on the TV, they just flew a plane into the World Trade Center. Mm. And you know how they showed it over and over in slow motion? I shouldn't have watched it, it traumatized me. And they mm. shut down the airport. Mm. And my mother died the next day. She died the next day. And when I was at my mother's funeral, uh, she was a devout Catholic. She divorced my father toward the end, which is, was good. And uh, the, the, the pastor gave this beautiful sermon of eulogy about her. And uh, I came back to St. Monica's church here, or the church I was at. They were having a healing service. I was watching, they were coming, anointing people with oil. And I sat in the back, about, I said, this Catholic church of mine, what a hypocritical, patriarchal, condescending, self-righteous, beautiful, tender, mysterious community this is. Mm. And I came back into my Catholicism, and I brought the Dharma in with me. And I found these, these, these um, voices of God in these other traditions enriched my own discipleship, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what it's been for me. Mm -hmm. Jim, tell us about your life today. Like, what's, what's it like for you, uh, being you right now? What's your daily practice? Uh, yeah. um, well, I'm 76, for starters. And my wife's 77. And, uh, you know, as you get old, the landscape changes. And uh, so, to my, and my wife's suffering from some fairly serious ongoing issues that compromise her. And I'm walking that walk with her. And, um, and then I look at my own things I'm going through physically, and just lack of energy. And I, I look on aging as the divinity of diminishment. And I find that it, sometimes it gets to me, you know, just, uh, I, I'm not a therapist anymore. I didn't renew my license about two years ago. And I, can't, I don't travel anymore, so it's been such a godsend with CAC and living school that I can do this from my home, actually. It's providential for me. But where, I, where I'm at with it, actually, um, especially at night when I'm up walking around, I can't sleep. I, I say this to Maureen a lot. I say, you know, 
if the purpose of life on this earth is to learn to love mission accomplished. And um, the journey on this earth is actually very short. Really. But the love we discover in it is deathless. And so at one level, I have to just let myself be a human being. You know, it's, it's hard. But if I, if I walk with it and accept it and practice what I preach by grounding my fears and sorrows in this very thing here, I find this kind of alchemy of this, of this deathless love uh, permeating through and through and through the, the, the fleeting frailty of my life on this earth. And um, and I, I share this too. I, I, the, when I was in the monastery, I would I would sit with Merton, and so moved to sit with him. Then when I'd walk out in the woods and sit beneath the tree and read John of the Cross, and he died centuries ago. Yet, the, like the deathless presence of the mystic, Thomas Merton once said, "You know," he said, "Don't think when we die we go somewhere when we die. You orbit the earth a few times and take off and go to God." <laughs> he said, "In God we live and move and have our being. All the dead are here." All the angels are here. Everything, everything real is forever. But our journey in, in ego consciousness is a fleeting temporal uh, manifestation of the eternality of the fleetingness of all things. And so I feel I'm at this stage right now. It's, it's very fascinating to me, really, this stage. You know, I like Richard Rohr saying, the trouble is there's too many old people who aren't elders. Mm, and just because mm. you're old doesn't mean you're an elder. <laughs> Sometimes I thought of saying to God, Dear God, help me to be the kind of old person young people want old people to be. <laughs> you know, help me be a wise, humble, open, non-impositional person. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I just feel, right, right, even having this interview here in my study, to me the whole journey is a miracle. Mm -hmm. You know, for a traumatized boy from Akron, Ohio, to mm -hmm. run off and go to a monastery and... Uh, you know, one cul-de-sac after another. That's how I think about our life, too. You look back, insofar as you're touched by what we're talking about, you look back at your own life and how it came to pass that you become the kind of person who's able to hear these things and the way you're able to hear them. You look back over your own life on how has that come to pass. You couldn't have planned it if you tried. You could not have planned it if you tried. Merton once said, the next time you receive the Eucharist, you should realize someone's taking perfectly good care of you. Mm. And I would say, insofar as we hear words like this, I think this is God, actually. Mm. I mean, and God who's begun this work in us will bring it to completion. Mm. And um, so that's how I experience it. I have a simple rhythm. I write six hours a day. I let Louis Maureen sits with me. And then in the afternoon, I tend to chores. Mm. And we sit out on the porch at Muffin Hour and look at the ocean. I have a glass of wine and I journal. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, we go to bed by seven o'clock, mm -hmm. and uh, it's a nice life. Mm. It's a good. It's a sweet life. Mm -hmm. yeah. That um, encouragement you just gave, or invitation you just gave, about looking back over your life and recognizing where God has been taking perfectly good care of you. Um, this is the idea that the mystics are helping us to be present to our own life and experience the deeper sense of our life and our connection to it is one, one caveat with this mm -hmm. as true as this is and it is true it is true but it doesn't mean when we're suffering that we're not really suffering it doesn't mean that the risks aren't real it doesn't mean by human standards not everybody makes it matter of fact many people don't 
And so there's the raw reality. And see, there's a way we don't transform trauma. There's the brutality which trans trauma transforms us in really brutal ways. It's, it's like being burned alive. But it's not just terrible. See, God writes straight with crooked lines. And out of the suffering deeply walked with patience and courage. And the givens out of it, the miracle arises. Otherwise, you know, you just look out at the world and you just turn on the evening news. How are you going to take all that in? Mm -hmm. If we don't somehow believe all this is somehow grounded in something, and then I'm invited to or called upon to play my part in it, in this, it's just given to me to do so in the place where I live, with the person I live with, the people I work with. Mm -hmm. And that radiates out, and, and that's the way, I think. Mm -hmm. So no promises that this podcast is going to Relieve us of all suffering. <laughs> it will not. No, I, I'm afraid I can make you a promise. Here, really, I want you to say, uh, if you had any hopes that by listening <laughs> to these podcasts you are going to be delivered, I don't see it happening. I just don't. I share this story about myself. Uh, when I did the sitting group at St. Monica's Church, it was upstairs in the parish hall. And I would work on one of these talks like I want to share on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And a half hour talk, and we do an hour of sitting practice. And uh, so one week, I, I would work on a, a year on one mystic. So one week I was working on this talk, I think it was Meister Eckhart, I don't remember. And I, I personally thought the talk was particularly profound. <laughs> I thought it was really, oh, this is a good one. And uh, when I got to the church, I realized I forgot my brilliant talk at home. And so I only had 30 minutes before the group started. So I tried to find a room to sit down and scribble out what I could remember, and all the doors were locked, so I had to sit on the floor at the end of a hallway on the back of an envelope writing out what I could remember. And as I was walking up the stairs, all the people were coming up for the sitting, about a hundred people or so. And as I walked up the stairs, because that happens to me all the time because I'm dissociative from the trauma, and I said to God, I said, you know, I, I just wonder, am I ever going to get my act together? And God said interiorly inside of me, he said, I don't see it coming. <laughs> I don't think you're going to get your act together. He said, I just don't see it, to be honest with you. <laughs> you know, you're kind of, kind, of, kind of die kind of whacked out guy. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what the teachings are about. Mm. You know what I mean? And look how someone, if you're like a dying loved one, really, um, they're so disarming, you know, in the transparency of their beauty, in the presence of what's happening to them. Okay? And likewise, this is what little children are so disarming too. So there's that in all of us. We always try to pose and posture and cover it up. And that's the sadness of it all. If we could let ourselves be grounded in that and then live our adult life out of that, I know the world would be a better place. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Who do you see as the community that you're hoping to build around this podcast? I, I see it as an extension of uh, the sitting group at St. Monica's Church. and. And really, the, the, the contemplative silent weekend retreats I've given all over the United States and Canada for maybe 30 years now. And really now, maybe six or eight times or so in Europe, starting through the kindness of Carolyn Mace first in Avila, Carolyn with Teresa of Avila, but then also in Norwich, England with Julianne of Norwich. And, and, and so I, uh, all over the world people gather, and it's always the same. You know, there's a kind of a communal sincerity of people who are searching for ways to deepen their experience of and response to God's presence in their life. And I'm speaking out of the Catholic tradition. I'm speaking out of this Christian tradition. It's open to all the traditions. 
And so I hope what people might possibly find here is uh, words of consolation and also words that will not compromise the radicality of the mystic way. And by making it true to its radicality, it will make it strangely accessible. See? That's the thing, really. See, And uh, I, I think that would be my hope. I also would encourage people, if they keep listening to this, to be patient with it. Because this way of talking, this way, it's a non-linear kind of poetry and blank verse that sustained exposure to brings about the realization of what the words are about. And so that would be my hope. And then also in the resources we're going to give them about the text where they can read it for themselves mm -hmm. and related resources. This might be a way for them to merge into this stream of these wisdom traditions. So Jim, I'd like to pivot and talk about life for you today, how we got to know each other, and your involvement with the Center for Action and Contemplation. So could you start by sharing about how you got involved with Richard and with the Center? Yes. <clears throat> when um, Merton's Palace of Nowhere came out, uh, and so every other weekend I was flying around the country leading silent meditation retreats in the United States and Canada. And because um, I was very aware of Richard Rohr's work. And we just randomly, it just so happened once, we were at the same retreat house at the same time and talked. And um, I, people were also telling me that he was telling people that he really liked Merton's Palace of Nowhere, encouraging them to read it. So I think we developed a kind of a mutual friendship with each other as teachers, as spiritual teachers. And he had me come once to CAC and give a weekend retreat there. Mm -hmm. So I went and I did, I did that. So uh, then the next step was I was invited to speak at a one of these big conferences and um, that he leads in Albuquerque. And so I, I, I went and did that. I think the first one I did, I think it was Jesus and Buddha. And uh, and these were, those are great experiences, you know, it was really lovely. And then I think the, the, the next one was um, uh, Intimacy, the Divine Ambush, John of the Cross. And, um, and then there was a third one, I can't recall right now. So anyway, there, were, there were several of those times I was invited to be his guest speaker with him uh, in Albuquerque. Then what happened was that there was a retreat, uh, and I think in Assisi. And in Assisi is when they were going to announce this idea of this living school, that there would be this program where people could devote them, their lives to a commitment to a contemplative practice, the reading of the classical texts of the mystics, and then uh, uh, letting that embody a form of service to the world. <clears throat> a non-academic program, personal enrichment and the transformation of the world. And Cynthia was there with Richard in Assisi. And uh, shortly after that event, which I knew, I knew it was happening, um, I got a phone call, I think it was from Richard, inviting me if I could be one of the core teachers with Cynthia. And uh, Cynthia knew of my work too because she was at one of those big conferences that I did on Intimacy, the Divine Ambush, I think. Mm -hmm. So she was very aware of my 
or so right away I said, yes, do it. And the reason I did it was I really saw that Richard Rohr is doing as a Franciscan in the world. Thomas Merton was doing as a Cistercian in the monastery. That is, he was carrying forward contemplative Christianity into, into today's world. And it was such a natural fit into what I'm about and how I live my life. It was just a perfect fit for me. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's how it came to pass that I ended up being a core teacher in the living school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and Cynthia Bourgeau is who you were referring to there. Yeah. And the, the three of you launched the living school about seven years ago now. I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the first times we started working together was when I was uh, first starting at the CAC and helping them create a strategic plan. And we were asking this big question, is there a life for the Centre for Action and Contemplation beyond Father Richard's life? Right. Or should be, we be preparing to wind it down and, and just have kind of a legacy organisation? And we were asking audience members of the CAC and teachers and others in the landscape about um, how they'd been am- impacted by the organisation, by Richard's teaching, and if they thought there was a role for us. Um, and you had one of the most impactful answers, and I, I wonder if you remember yeah. how you answered that. You know, I, <clears throat> I said, what I, to my mind, what I was comparing this to in my mind is, say, when St. Benedict was living in the 5th century, and he was one of these deeply contemplative people, had a profound effect on people. And people gathered around him. And so when he wrote his rule, he wrote a legacy that would carry forward what people saw he embodied so that by the following of the rule until you have the, the Benedictine. Same with Francis. Same with Lineage. So I thought if we look on Richard Rohr in that way, that he's someone who providentially has touched many, many, many people. And uh, knowing... Just like all these teachers, he's more he's moving on. By the way, so is James Finley moving on. Mm-hmm. Cynthia, we're all moving on. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> therefore, how uh, how would we carry forward this lineage, which is really Richard embodies it, but it's not about Richard. You know, Richard embodies it in his obediential fidelity to it. So I thought what we could do is anything that any of us come up with, like an idea, like a course, or a certain emphasis, whatever it is, is if Richard could hear this, would he approve? And since he's still alive, we can ask him. Mm-hmm. See, is this of your mind? Because it's, if it is of your mind, then it'll be the mind of the tradition, because mm-hmm. you feel faithful to the lineage, to the spirit of the tradition. And that's how, while we still have access to him, we can capture um, the gestalt, we can capture that sense going forward. And I also think another thing about Richard, as I'm sure with all these people, is that he, he wouldn't want it to be that we would parrot him, but rather we're carrying forward what's faithful to the lineage mm-hmm. as it lives in us. Just like the people who would listen to the teachers are to carry forward as it listens to them, as it lives in them. And, uh, and I think that just makes sense to me. That's mm-hmm. just how it's, that's how a heritage is handed on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You said uh, at the time something to the effect of um, 
the the CAC should be about what Richard's been about because Richard hasn't been about Richard. That's Richard's right. been about this Christian mystical lineage. That's right. And uh, that's become like a an equation we use now inside the CAC. That yeah. CAC equal equals what Richard's about. And uh, that's right. I once gave a talk. It was the International Thomas Merton Society, and um, it's a great society. And it also, there's a lot of scholarly papers and books on Merton carrying forward. And I, I thought and the same thing applies to Richard. It applies to Merton. Is that with Merton? I was saying, and I would say it then with Richard, is that one way to study Merton, to understand Merton, is to study Merton. What did Merton say about solitude? What did Merton say about art? What did Merton say about prayer? What did Merton? And that's good. You do a paper on that, or a book on it, or to give talks on it. The other way is to join Merton in being committed to what Merton was committed to, mm. which is God. Mm. And if we join Merton in being committed to what he was committed to, or join Richard Rohr in what Richard Rohr is committed to, which is his fidelity to God's fidelity to us, translated into service of the world, that's really the spirit of how this is, what it's about, really. Mm. Mm. Um. I remember when we f very first started working together, uh, when I became your main point of contact, and we had some things to negotiate. We're, we were expanding your role. Um, you were renegotiating your whole kind of teaching ministry in the world. And uh, I remember you highlighting to me that how we um, acted in the conversation, in the dialogue, that the dialogue itself was the most important thing to you. Right. And that how we behaved in the dialogue, how we um, stayed in a state of contemplative listening and respect. And uh, it really impacted me, uh, you guiding me that way. And I, I realized that often in meetings I had the outcome in mind, that I was kind of moving towards something and not honoring the sense and the presence of the dialogue. And uh, I've tried to maintain that in our relationship moving forward, but also now in in all my meetings and dialogues at the center. Yeah, you know, I, I think, um, um, I, I say this as a psychotherapist too, like psychotherapy, is um, one way I've thought of psychotherapy is that psychotherapy is meditation for two. Okay. In other words, what psychotherapy is about is I'm inviting you to slow down enough to be present at the feeling level to what you just said. And I meet you there, and we talk. See, then we're in the stream of transformation. Mm. So in therapy, we're not coming to hear a lecture about diagnostic categories. You know, we're looking for help. And same with spiritual direction. You go see the spiritual teacher. You're not looking for a lecture on theories of mystical union. You're looking for how to be faithful to what's happening to you. And therefore, I thought then if you and I, in our dialogues, if our, it's important our interactions embody that same spirit, then, then we are about what the tradition's about. Mm. Because, and that's really, pro, you know, that's the priority of process, uh, which then gives rise to a content that concretizes that process momentarily, because it has to give way to a new, a new configuration, a new configuration. And that way it's kind of models that. Uh, sense of mutual, kind of open-ended uh, attentiveness mm -hmm. toward each other 
which, in, in the path along the way. Mm-hmm. Which is really contemplative work it, to it, do it, the work that way. It, it really is contemplative work. Mm. See, and, and I also think, and I, likewise, I would say with these mystics we're reading, say Merton or John of the Cross, when you really think about it in a way, Merton is inviting you to join him. So Merton says, with God, a little sincerity goes a long, long way. So in a way, he's inviting you to meet him. See, And as we listen to words, that helps us listen more deeply to ourselves. And so the reading becomes this very kind of encounter that we're talking about here, like heart to heart, mm-hmm. like uh, longing for longing, like that. That's mm-hmm. it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Moving out of the professional sphere, so prior to me working for the CAC, you were already my teacher. And um, I wanted to share a story about when I first joined the living school as a student. And the first thing you do at the living school is you go for a week-long symposium with all the other students and the teachers, and it's in person, um, whereas the majority of the teachings online so it's a it's a big in-person gathering it's really exciting i showed up to that living school symposium in what not feeling great i would describe it as kind of a depression or a dark night even i hadn't been able to have children um in my life and i was just struggling with the way that had been impacting me i felt uh isolated from my friends as they were all having children and their social structures were really evolving to be around the kids. Um, so I was not able to join them in that, was not being invited into that. So it was really difficult. And then just the uh, my own real disappointment in not being able to have that experience and, um, and then some of the disappointment from my family, you know, trying to live with all of that. So I came to the living school feeling really down but hopeful that I would get the word from a word there or, or something anyway so that I was there the whole week and the, the living school finished and I hadn't gotten it and uh, I was still feeling really low and and even hopeless by then because I felt like if a, if a gathering like this if teachers like this can't help me then you know I, I was starting to lose the, the, the hope that I had and uh, anyway, so it was the the day after the living school finished, I was due to fly home and uh, my flight was later in the day. So I went down to the cafeteria or the, the little restaurant to have lunch. And uh, I was standing there with the person about to seat me and you came in behind me and uh, I turned around and I said, oh, hi, James Finley. And uh, you said, hello want to have lunch (laughs) and uh it was as if in that moment the roof blew off the hotel (laughs) and this sense of darkness and hopelessness just all went away and it felt i was in warmth and sunlight and um it was as if god was was saying "I've, i've i've been here all along i've been here all along what you've been looking for has been right here and I didn't really get the answers that I was looking for, like why, why, why wasn't I able to have children? What, what is the plan? What, why is that happening? But I felt uh, a sense of peace and contentment. And uh, then we had lunch. Yeah. 
this is a lovely story. I'll share some thoughts about that. Yeah. Um, is that, you know, uh, in, in St. Benedict says in this rule that when someone approaches the monastery to enter, do not let the person in right away. Keep them waiting outside the gate. And the question is, you know, like, what are you looking for? Like, what do you want? And um, this is in the Buddhist tradition also, in approaching entrance into the Sangha. See, what, do you, what kind of teaching do you want? And what often happens is the teaching we think we're looking for mm. isn't the teaching that we're really longing for. And very often it starts out by searching for something to ease a source of suffering in our life. Mm. And then you encounter someone or someone in whose presence a qualitatively different dimension, the whole thing opens up. Mm -hmm. Like you're blindsided by it almost. <laughs> you know, it's a yeah. strange experience like yes. that. And uh, I also think then that that should all help us to realize how providentially love uses us to serve its own purposes. We never know. And what we're always looking for is to, like, to see the lost look in somebody's eyes and to stop and ask, are you okay? Mm. We never really know. Maybe you could be saving their life. Mm -hmm. You know, we never know. And so I think this is how this lineage is lived by our sensitivity to each other mm -hmm. like that. And that, that's a deep part of the teaching, I think, really. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, that was a mm -hmm. lovely story. I remember that moment. So, yeah. I have another one. <laughs> so this one was um, a few years before that where you were teaching at a big CAC conference, one of the ones you mentioned. And um, we, we have a, often have a banquet at those conferences. And so you, the banquet was finishing and you were walking across the room to leave. And you walked past me. I was sitting down at my table and uh, just... I, I can't imagine the lost look on my face uh, because as you walked past me, you looked at me and then you stopped and uh, you said, you said, hello. And I said, like in this rushed, nervous way, hello, James Finley, your talks on healing have changed my life. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you knelt down to be eye to eye with me and you said, really, how have they changed your life? And I said, uh, well, you know, my my father is bipolar and he left when I was very young and I have a very chaotic sense of a father in my in my system. And listening to, to your talks and the way you talk about love and the way you talk about the preciousness of, of all of us, um, I've let that reparent me and to be the voice of of my parent and then to access that as God's voice parenting me and uh, it has changed everything. That's yeah. a gift, yes. You know, some I think about this too, like in certain schools, psychotherapy, you know, they, they speak about transference. And transference is where the person in therapy will project on you the issues of the core parent figure. So they're either like angry or aloof or resentful or seductive or uh, uh, ingratiate, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So what the therapist is to do is to listen to the transference mm -hmm. and listen to their own counter-transference and use it to respond to the person to reparent them in love. Mm. That is, 
is possible here together. We can have a corrective experience mm -hmm. by modeling for you the way you deserve to have been treated from the day you were born, mm. like that. Mm. And and uh, I think that's a big piece of you know kind of like um, contemplative mercy mm -hmm. of how that happens to people. Yeah, um, yeah. I remember you saying at the time um, when you hear stories like that, it gave you confidence that you were doing your own work and that the grace was passing through you into the lives of the people that were you know, listening was, to you. When I was teaching in Cleveland, Ohio, I hadn't written Merton's Palace yet. I was teaching at this Jesuit school in Cleveland, high school. And uh, there was a nun there at a retreat house in Cleveland. And um, she had heard that I was teaching there and that I was with Merton. She asked me to give a talk at the retreat house there. And so I'd never give a spiritual talk before. And uh, I'm, I'm actually very introverted. I'm very shy. I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not kind of comfortable all And uh, I decided just to speak from my heart and kind of try to share with them what happened to me in the monastery. And it was like a, it was the strangest experience for me. It was like an event in the room. You know, it was almost like a voice that touched a shared longing in people. And I'll never forget that moment. And that, that's what's always meant to me to be a teacher, mm. is to somehow channel in a way of sharing what utterly radicalized my life mm. by just speaking of it as honestly, you know, as clearly as I can. Because it, it, it just touches a very deep longing in people. Mm -hmm. And it kind of trusts the providential nature where our paths cross unexpectedly, one-on-one mm -hmm. on one like that. Mm -hmm. It's very mysterious, really, how that works. Yeah. yeah. Well, to bring my two stories together, at the end of uh, 2014, uh, so I was just in the living school, I, uh, just after our big lunch moment. <laughs> at the end of that year, uh, my husband's sister-in-law died tragically and unexpectedly. And she had one son, Will, and uh, he was about 21 years old at the time and just was shocked and devastated and then left alone after his mother's death. And so my husband and I did our best to kind of adopt him. He ca came to live with us for 18 months and we really just tried to build a connected relationship with him, help him get back on his feet. And uh, he's become like a son to me yeah. and a very important, precious person to me. And I remember um, writing to you in 2016, uh, at the beginning of 2016, and saying, I, I can't believe I'm starting this year with the uh, spiritual father I always needed and the son I always wanted. And uh, I couldn't plan it if I tried, but just held a lot of gratitude for the way things can work. I remember that. And also, I remember thinking about this, that there are some, there are women who are, they're mothers. It's a gift to be a mother. It's part of the transcendental quality of our very being, really, to, to mother, to father. It's part of our humanity. It's a very deep thing. And so somehow to want that, and some people for different reasons don't want that. They don't want to actualize that potential. But there are some people who aren't able, say, physically to do that. And then providentially, the maternal reality 
uh, unexpectedly grants itself, like you with will. Mm -hmm. you know? And all of a sudden, in a very real way that's as real, which is really the depth dimension of if a person was physically your son. Mm -hmm. And some people, that maternal grace can be more deeply realized. I think. And I also think that's a mystery of, I know celibacy is problematic and complicated, mm -hmm. but I do think the idea of the charism of celibacy, like in the Buddhist tradition and the Catholic tradition, mm -hmm. it really is that there's this kind of a sublimated um, a prayer energy in which one fathers or mothers people, mm. you know, in a kind of very powerful way pass mm -hmm. on. And it's, it's always a grace when that happens. Mm -hmm. you know. uh, once when we were meeting uh, for breakfast, you told a story that I've always remembered, and I'd love you to tell it about the relationship between a student and a teacher, and uh, it had to do with a long corridor. So. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I share this in my um, the audio set I did with Sounds True on Merton's Path to the Palace of Nowhere. So this is one of the metaphors that is to be like this would be a metaphor. Mm -hmm. Let's say we're talking about the relationship of the seeker to the teacher mm -hmm. in these traditions. Mm -hmm. And I say, imagine you're at the end of a long hallway, real, real long hallway, and you have an armful of books all the way up to your chin. Mm -hmm. And now at the other end of this long hallway, there's a door, and your teacher's standing there at that door with his or her hand on the doorknob. Mm -hmm. And you start to walk down the hallway, and the very first step, you trip. Mm -hmm. And you go down the whole hallway like, ah, <laughs> I'm trying to get you. And just before you crash into the door, the mm -hmm. teacher opens the door. And you head out across the countryside. Uh, eventually, you get the hang of it. <laughs> and then you're a mystic. <laughs> uh, the, the mystics are people for whom it's been unbearable for so long. They discovered the divinity of it all. Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. And there's a lot of truth to that. Mm -hmm. really. the, uh, I remember you saying, um, you, the mystic's the one who's learned to trip and stand up and trip and stand up uh, yeah. and trip and stand up. Or say the mystic teacher is the one to let you know as gently as possible that you're beyond human help. Mm -hmm. See? Because if you're capable of achieving it on your own, it'd be infinitely less than what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And so the dark night of the soul, when we talk about these purifying experiences, these are really metaphorical ways of alluding to that coming to the end of our own resources. Mm staying there with sincerity and patience and then discovering this kind of unexpected richness like welling up and giving itself to us in ways that are beyond what we would have been capable of attaining and being, being like surprised by that or amazed by that mm -hmm. yeah one last thing um i remember is when uh, i started putting these stories together for you in one of our dialogues around that first time we met at the conference and then the living school and now we're working together and I remember you saying I hear these stories and I think who is this James Finley that she's talking about and yeah. can you expand yeah, on that a little just bit? In this, sense, in this sense I think in stories like this in other words I see really what people are responding to really they're kind of responding to what I responded to when I mm -hmm. met Merton that they're really responding to that Mm -hmm. And it's real. I mean, I, it's, I just, I just live this way. This way. But, the, but the point, and this is the point for them too. Mm -hmm. But I live here in the concreteness of just being a, a human being trying to get through another day. Mm -hmm. So I'm 76 years old. My wife's out in the living room. 77. She's seriously ill. Mm -hmm. And I live in a daily fragility, 
and the raveling of the unraveling of things. And um, that all this is I'm not exempt from the human experience, the mm. suffering and death and loss. And so my participation in the ordinariness of the human experience is I'm being asked to walk the walk, as I'm being asked to, uh, the sense of God is a presence that spares us from nothing, even as God unexplainably sustains us in all things, mm -hmm. that I'm to be unexplainably sustained in the midst of unravelings that I can hardly deal with. And that somehow if I do that deeply, that somehow this is as precious, you know, and as trustworthy as the day I was born or the day like that. Mm -hmm. So I think this is where, eventually for anyone who is for other people in this way, that the authenticity of the teaching comes out of the authenticity of their lived vulnerability mm -hmm. to themselves as, a, as, an as an infinitely loved, fragile human being. And I think that's the teaching. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you for your teaching. And uh, we're so excited to, to have this podcast with you and yeah. look forward to all that it will bring. Thank you. And I'm, and I'm, I'm grateful, too, that now that I'm in this place where I can't travel anymore. Mm -hmm. So it gives me a providential way that I can share these teachings with people you know, here from my home. And so I'm kind of amazed and grateful for that, too. It's kind of so unex utterly unexpected to me, so I'm grateful for it. So win-win you know, all the way around. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Please consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend who might be interested in learning and practicing with this online community. To learn more about the work of James Finley, please visit jamesfinley.org. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.